First uh, Peter three eighteen. Now I'm reading this time from the New Living, and then we're going to break it down from the ESV. Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. So he went and preached to the spirits in prison, those who disobeyed God long ago when God waited patiently while Noah was building his boat. Only eight people were saved from drowning in that terrible flood. And that water is a picture of baptism, which saves you not by removing dirt from your body, but as a response to God from a clear conscience. It is effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Christ has gone to heaven, and he is seated in the place of honor next to God, and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. If this is your first time at Revolve for an Easter, you know we like doing little different passages because there's just so much glorious truth about the resurrection throughout the, the Bible. And so you don't need to only, you know, read Matthew 28 or whatever it might be. And so, uh, you know, Christianity, if you're, if you're here and, and you're kind of wondering what all this is about, Christianity is rooted in what we call the gospel. And don't be super confused by that. Gospel is simply the Greek word um, that means good news. And so Christianity is rooted in good news. And good news in the Bible is kind of like a diamond, and there's various facets. There's the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom, the good news of his grace, the good news of all of these various facets of this central concept of King Jesus. Um, and if you don't know what the gospel is, as we think about the gospel, you're going to learn about that today. Because the truth of the gospel is that it's a very simple concept to grasp. Matter of fact, there's lots of verses that summarize the gospel in a verse, and we're going to look at some of those today. But a really easy one is 1 Timothy 1.15. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And that's the real core essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of his death and resurrection. Jesus Christ d got died to save sinners. But I want you to know that the good news of Jesus is simple. It's simple enough that my four-year-old can tell you that Jesus died on the cross so she wouldn't have to die on the cross and her understanding of it, right? It's simple enough for her to grasp. But simple does not mean shallow. Simple does not mean shallow. And the reality is for a lot of people, I wasn't raised in the church, but for a lot of people who were raised in the church, um, you hear the gospel thrown around with such simplistic terms that we tend to forget that it is a profound thing. And so Easter Sunday, or Resurrection Sunday, as it's been known throughout church history, is all about the resurrection of Jesus. It's all about the resurrection of Jesus. It, it, it represents that on the third day after Jesus paid for the sins of man on a cross, that's Good Friday, he, his death satisfied the wrath of God, in other words, he paid the full penalty for my sin and for yours. And then three days later, since dead men aren't very helpful, God raised him from the dead. And he came back conquering sin on the cross, conquering death at the resurrection. And then God crowned him and gave him rule and authority above every name. And he became this first fruit of the resurrection. The father crowned him king. And then Jesus 
told his followers, like we read in Matthew 28 at the beginning of our time together, to go, and under the authority of King Jesus, he commands us to go, to be fruitful, and to multiply, exactly what God had said to Adam and Eve, to fill the earth with his people, to bring about his dominion, or his kingdom reign. So this is why we celebrate today. Resurrection Sunday represents not some, you know, uh, Christian tradition that we really should make sure this day is holier than all the others. No, every day we celebrate the resurrection. Resurrection Sunday specifically reminds us of the day when sin was not only paid for, but the casket was burst apart from the inside out. The gospel is simple. I mean, I just explained it in less than a couple minutes, but it's immensely profound And some of you who have been believers for decades are going to hear some things today that you didn't know before. Okay? 1 Peter 3, 18 to 22. I'm going to, now I'm going to read a verse at a time in the English Standard Version. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. You can read about this in Hebrew 9 in more depth. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now this verse, uh, 1 Peter 3.18, very nicely summarizes what Jesus did on the cross. He suffered once for sins. He suffered the righteous man for the unrighteous man. He suffered that he might bring me and you to God. And this happened because he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is the essence of the gospel. But in theological terms, what Peter's describing here in chapter 3, verse 18, and this is, you just remember this in case like Brett never quizzes you. He's one of our elders and he wants to know, and you can remember this. This is called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. And this refers to the idea that Jesus died as my substitute. He died as your substitute. He died as a substitute for sinners. Now, what does that mean? Well, the scriptures teach very clearly from cover to cover that all people are sinners. Now, what does that mean, that you're a sinner? It means that we are in open rebellion against God, both by nature, that it's our our bent, right? And by choice, that yes, this is our nature, but then we also choose. So by nature and by choice, people are in open rebellion against God. Um, And the penalty for that, sinfulness the penalty for that rebellion is death romans 6 23 says this for the wages of sin is death in other words you sin what you get paid is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord so the the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus so without christ the reality is this that we are going to die because we earned it And as that death, we will spend an eternity in hell, forever apart from God, as payment for our sins. That's what we earned. That's the wages we get paid. Now, you need to realize here, with this idea of death in the New Testament and the Old, this idea of death is intertwined with separation. Because everybody will die, and some will live with God in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. Others will live separated from God for all eternity in hell. Jesus Christ, however, died in our place when he was crucified on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to rectify that problem. And so we deserve to be the ones who are on the cross, but Jesus took the punishment on himself 
in our place. He substituted himself for us, taking what we rightly deserve. Are you following me so far? This is the this is the what happened in the gospel. This is why Jesus had to die. This is why Jesus is more than a good example, okay? This is why what Jesus accomplished is not just showing us a new way to live in some kind of social gospel. This is this is significant. This is what the scriptures are all about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, it's that substitutionary atonement, that switch. Peter said it earlier in chapter 2, verse 24, he himself, Jesus, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, the tree being the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And then quoting Isaiah 53, by his wounds... You have been healed. Christ suffered for our sins. The righteous was condemned so the unrighteous could be forgiven. If you're doubting that this is a theme, this is what the story of Barabbas in the Gospels is all about. The guilty insurrectionist goes free. Jesus, the innocent lamb, gets killed. The substitution. So he's condemned and we live. Why? That he might bring us to God by making us alive in the spirit. The alternative, by the way, is that you have full rights to pay for the price of your sin on your own and receive that. Um, but that is essentially what hell is. This is what the cross accomplished. This is why the cross matters, okay? So that's substitutionary atonement in a verse. Let's read that verse again and then the next two verses. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And that's when everybody goes, huh? <laughs> right? Verse 18, pretty, pretty obvious, pretty clear. You can break it down clause by clause. And then you get to verse 19, and you're really tempted to be like, let's just skip right to verse 22. So what is Peter talking about? What is Peter referring to? Well, we're gonna we're kind of gonna we're gonna act like a toddler for a moment, and we're just gonna keep asking the question: Why? Why did Jesus die? You can say it out loud: To save sinners. Um, why do we sin? Because we're sinners both by nature and by choice. Why are we sinners by nature, which then impacts our choice? Because Adam, our first parent, our head of our humanity, our federal head, it's called, he rebelled against God, therefore corrupting our spiritual DNA for everyone who followed, all right? It actually says that it was in his seed, okay? So we are corrupted in Adam, and then we are not just corrupted in Adam, but we make decisions in our current day. Well, why did Adam do that? Because he was deceived, 
and he listened to the deceiver, Satan, instead of listening to the author of life. Well, why did that happen? Because there was and is still underway a massive war in heaven that is reflected here on earth. Okay, that's, now you say, all right, now listen. No, we don't live in another country. We live here, okay? And we know those things aren't real. That's just myth and superstition. I'd like you to know that as an American or as someone in the global north, um, you are in the minority for discounting the spiritual world. The vast majority of the world is very much in tune with the fact that there is an unseen realm that we do not see because it's unseen. See, these are the things they teach you in seminary. You know, this is top-level interpretation. <laughs> unseen means not seen, okay? So here's the thing, guys. The serpent in the garden of Eden deceived Eve, deceived Adam, is a spiritual being, all right? I'm using that as a very general term. Is a spiritual being, and uh, he's known in the scriptures as Satan. But Satan simply is the word for the adversary. That's all Satan means. And he is a spiritual being who wants to ruin God's plan. That's why he deceived Eve and Adam, because he wanted to ruin God's plan. And so the question you should ask is, what is God's plan? Well, this is God's plan. This was God's plan, that God the creator and king of everything creates people and he creates them in Genesis 1 in his image, okay? Now, we don't live in the ancient Near East, but in his image refers to the idea that if I was the king of Babylon and I had like a, an area that was over there far away from my, my city, I would put a statue of me as a, as, that's my image. My, my kingdom is still over there and that's authenticated by the fact that my statue, my image is there. Okay, And so if you take that and you think about what that means for people, God created people uniquely, not turtles, not aardvarks. He created people as his image. That means that people are an extension of God's kingly authority and reign on earth, which is why he says to Adam, you need to have dominion over all that I've created. So God is the king, and Adam was created to be essentially a little king under the authority of the king of everything, the king of heaven, the king of all kings. He was ruling in his stead as his extension. But what happens is Satan thinks that's a terrible idea because God made people a little lower than the angels, so then why shouldn't the angels be ruling? And so Satan doesn't like this idea, and so he deceives Adam and Eve. And when they listen to him, instead of listening to God the Father for what is the definition of good and evil, like it says in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, it's as if Adam takes off his crown, kneels, and puts it on Satan's head. And so basically what happened in the garden is Adam is supposed to be king and he gives the kingly right to rule to Satan, which is why the New Testament now refers to Satan as the king of this age and the ruler of the prince of the air and all of these different things because this is Satan's domain, okay? He's king here. 
A new king is crowned. Dominion is now given to this rebellious spiritual being and all of his cronies who rebelled with him. And we, as people who now willfully subject ourselves to his reign, get everything that comes with it, which is the curse of sin and death. But God, in the midst of this, of the, of this narrative in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise and he says, Eve is going to have a child who's going to crush your head. That's what he says to the serpent. One of her offspring is going to crush your head. Now listen, because this will help you understand all of the Old Testament. Okay? In that moment, what begins is a massive, intentional war where the, the line of Satan tries to corrupt the line of Eve so that Satan and his minions can prevent the seed from ever being born. Okay? So immediately what happens? Cain kills Abel. Maybe Abel was the scene, the seed. What happens after that? We get to this very strange story right before the flood. And what happens in that strange story is that it says, in those days, the sons of God, which simply means the little g gods, spiritual beings, you can call them fallen angels, whatever's in your, your framework of your mind, demons, whatever you're thinking, all right, spiritual beings that rebelled against God, it says that they began to intermix with human women, and their offspring were called Nephilim. I told you, you're like, what? kind of church did we go to for Easter? No, no, listen, bear with me, because this is what Peter's referencing, okay? They were called Nephilim, which is just a transliterated Hebrew word, and they're basically, he says, they're the giants of old, like Goliath, violent, ruthless, and God decides he's not tolerating this anymore. It says he looks down on the earth, and he felt sorrow, and so he decides to, to identify one man, Noah, who he shows favor to, and his family, and he tells him it's coming. He tells him to build a big boat called an ark, and he says, there's going to be a day when it's going to start to rain, and I'm going to wash this whole thing out with a giant power washer, a global flood. And that's exactly what happens. And what you learn from the Hebrew worldview is that all of those rebellious spirits— and those Nephilim, they get cast into what the Bible calls is prison. And that word prison, elsewhere in the New Testament, it never refers to a place for people. It always refers to a holding place for Satan and other fallen angels. Okay? Now, this may sound wild, okay? And, I, and I'm sure that first time I ever started reading about and researching it, it sounded wild to me. But I challenge you, if you go and are a student of the word, you'll realize this is everything that I'm saying is what the scripture teaches. This is the Hebrew worldview of the day, okay? And you say, what does this have to do with the resurrection? Well, let's go back and read verse 19. So in the spirit, it says he died in the flesh, but he was going to be made alive in the spirit. And in the flesh, the dead flesh, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. That's what Peter's referring to. Peter's referring to all of those spiritual beings and Nephilim that are under judgment because they had been trying to ruin and corrupt this line of the promised seed. 
So now I want you to consider this, okay? I want you to really just give me the benefit of the doubt. Throughout history, Satan and his minions have been trying to stop the prophecy of the promised son who's going to crush the serpent's head. At any cost, they need to stop the son from reclaiming the crown and therefore the throne and the right to rule. Jesus arrives on the scene, the promised descendant. Satan tries to tempt him in the wilderness as he did Adam, but Jesus doesn't fall for it. Then Satan tries to use human means to destroy Jesus, as he had throughout history, by corrupting the kings and by um, all of the things that you read about in the Old Testament. He twists the Pharisees against him. He twists the zealots against him. He twists Judas Iscariot against him. And then Jesus is arrested, and he's tried, and he's sentenced to death, although he's innocent. Now, if you were one of those imprisoned spiritual rebels and you are waiting in the spiritual gulag watching this whole thing unfold and you see Jesus hanging on a cross, the promised seed, the one who was going to come, and he's dead. What do you think you're thinking? We won. We won. Jesus dies in the flesh. And Jesus is a 100% spiritual being, 100% man. He's 100% God, 100% man. He dies in the flesh, and guess where he descends? The spiritual prison. But when he arrives, there's no time for the demons to gloat. Instead, what does it say that he does in verse 19? He goes and proclaims to the spirits who are in prison. What do you think Jesus proclaims? Use your most colorful imagination and don't say it out loud. But basically, Jesus is like, Jesus goes and does this epic mic drop, and he's like, oh, how you like me now? And he's, then he's resurrected. Because the whole point is that Jesus was like a Trojan horse who goes into the grave and they think they won and then Jesus kicks the door down from the inside out and he starts letting all the other captives free. See, this is the gospel. It is simple, but it is remarkably profound. What they, what the spiritual realm, this is, listen, you say, I don't believe it. Believe me, because this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he says that even the angels didn't know this was going to happen, and they saw this unfolding before their very eyes, and they longed to look at it and understand that what is God doing? This was a, a plan that only God the Father and God the Son, God the Spirit knew about. Everybody else saw it as a shadow. They think this is their victory, Jesus dying on the cross, but it's actually their defeat. This was God's plan all along because he was the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, kicking off the door, defeating sin on Friday and defeating death on Sunday. Peter continues, he says, baptism which corresponds to this or represents this, now saves you. And you say, baptism doesn't save you. This is what he says. Now saves you not as a removal 
of dirt. In other words, the physical act of baptism doesn't save you, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So the mere mechanical act of baptism does not save you because Peter says explicitly, as the ESV study notes point out, not as a removal of dirt from the body, meaning that a bath won't wash away your sins. Baptism represents your faith in what Jesus did on the cross and in the empty tomb. Why does it have to do with baptism and why does he then talk about the ark? Because Jesus is the ark that saves us from the wrath of God. Peter is saying this. This gets wild, guys. When you are baptized, this is Romans 6, you are mimicking the journey of Jesus. Dying being buried, and then being resurrected. Okay? Why? Because every single time a follower of Jesus gets baptized, it's like God is putting them down to the spirits in prison, <laughs> showing you off for a split second, and then pulling you back to resurrection. So every single baptism is a giant to the spirits in prison. Think about that. That God is putting them down, showing you off for a second. How you like me now? How you like me now? How you like me now? Continually, continually, a constant reminder that guess what? You lost. You lost. And there's an expiration date and it's branded on the carton of milk and the day is coming. That's basically what baptism is all about. Mimicking this journey of Jesus. Every time someone gets baptized, God is showing them off to the rebellious angels and then pulling them back to life. And this is the linchpin. All of this is possible because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus just died. Without the resurrection, we just died. He continues, through the resurrection of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, and look what he says, with angels and authorities and powers subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers always refers to, refers to demons in the New Testament. And so he's saying angels and powers and authorities, now they're subjected to his kingly reign. In other words, Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Christ has triumphed over his enemies and now he's ascended to the right hand of God and all of the rebellious angels and all of the demonic powers are subjected to him because he is now, Philippians 2, Lord and Christ. And God has given him authority over heaven and earth, Matthew 28. The expiration date is set and as for us, we are crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him, seated with him, and hidden in his body. And now in this life, we walk around as king's ambassadors announcing to everyone everywhere that they don't need to listen to the spiritual beings who used to be in control because there's a new king in town and he's recruiting. And all of this because of the substitutionary atonement of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. The gospel is simple. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And that salvation is received by faith in what he has done. 
But the implications of the gospel are insanity. Dethroned spiritual powers, demons in hell awaiting eternal judgment, a constant string of baptisms of death and rebirth into a new humanity, death and rebirth, death and rebirth as a reminder to the rebels that they've lost, a kingdom being restored and then made anew, and a ridiculously tough, not pastel king who kicked down the gates of hell from the inside out. Listen, if you think the gospel is wimpy, then we are not reading the same Bible. If you think the gospel is a crutch for people who are weak, then you've never met Jesus. This king doesn't say, ask me into your heart. This king doesn't say, pray this prayer and I'll give you a get out of jail free card. This king says, follow me if you want to live, okay? And then he goes spiritual terminator on, on these spiritual beings. See, our invitation is not a mental assent to the facts of Jesus. Saving faith is putting your faith, your trust, in the resurrected king and joining his kingdom. It's a journey. It's a new creation. It's a new humanity. It is a new identity. That's why Jesus always said, follow me.